This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good evening, everybody, or good late afternoon, good early evening, good crepuscular time, good dusk. Fantastic to have you all online again today. Um, it's Henry Sonson with The Twilight Show. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. And good evening again, everybody. I've decided on evening. I'm going to stick with evening because that's roughly what it is. Okay, so I do hope that all of you out there, whether you're listening live or whether you've uh, downloaded this via some sort of application and you're tuning in at a later date, I hope that you're very well. We've got a fantastic show for you this evening, I hope. Um, We're focused after uh, a break last week on mentorship. Now, as you know, my main sort of line of attack Um, in and around my Teacher Talk radio show is the world of initial teacher education. Uh, We started out uh, talking about the benefits or the, uh, not the benefits, that's not what I mean, is it? I'm thinking about sort of the naming, the the semantics behind the naming of uh, initial teacher training. Is it initial teacher training? Is it initial teacher education? Um, And then we built on that and we started looking at elements of collaboration. We started to consider things about what we called the X factor. So we looked at experience versus expertise and expectations. And then we moved on in the following week to look at F words. Uh, We were looking at efficiency and effectiveness. Tonight, um, I'm very, very pleased to be shifting the focus slightly more towards mentorship. Now, uh, in conversation in previous weeks, a discussion has arisen about mentorship and whether or not it is indeed a vocation. I strongly feel that it is. And hopefully this evening, what we're going to look to do is to explore the mentorship of initial teacher trainees and perhaps touching on those in their early careers as well. Uh, I'm very excited to be able to uh, bring in a special guest this evening, the fantastic uh, Miss Butler-Vikes, Debs Butler. Um, who will be sharing her points of view and opinions on and around mentorship and her own experience of that role, both from an active live face-to-face mentor and as an induction tutor. As ever, I've put a few questions in the chat. So, first of all, what makes a great mentor? Please do text in, call in, type in with your views. Secondly, what can a provider and I, in a way, sort of speak from personal experience because I am a a director of a skit. What can a provider such as I ask of my mentors? What should providers expect from their mentors? And then uh, a few suggestions for anyone who wants to join in on what we would consider to be essential reading for mentors. I'll give you a few key research papers and a key few sort of practical guides as to what makes effective mentorship. And... Um, Another slightly bigger question is how should schools select their mentors for initial teacher trainees? 
should providers get a say in who the mentor is or should a provider simply be happy that there is indeed a mentor at all there to support them? I know there's a lot of concern at the moment about the, the availability of placements for initial teacher trainees. And that availability, of course, impacts on the quality of mentorship, because if you've not got available space, you, you find a space, you might not actually have a mentor with the requisite qualities to do the job effectively. So that is what we are going to be looking at this evening. Now, as ever, I do like to open with a quotation. And this evening's quotation, um, I'm sort of moving away from uh, old educators and seminal papers and research work. And I'm actually going to Genesis. And by that, I don't mean Phil Collins and Mike Rutherford and uh, indeed Peter Gabriel, if you're that way inclined. But actually, Genesis uh, chapter 11, verse 7. Come. Let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And the importance of that quotation, I think, will uh, develop as the show goes on. You may recognise that as being related to the Tower of Babel. Now, the Tower of Babel is an analogy that I'm exploring quite a lot at the moment with regards to the way in which language is shared between stakeholders in the training of initial teacher and pre-service trainees okay and i'm very much of the opinion that unless everybody understands each other effectively and everybody understands why in which uh, certain things are being done why the language is the way it is then we're never actually going to have that clarity that cohesion and that coherence that we need so what can we expect from the show this evening well uh, as i say whether you're listening live or whether you're going to be downloading this later on um, our initial focus in a few moments, I will be introducing the fantastic Debs Butler uh, and we'll have a nice little conversation followed by, you know, preceded by a catch up because I haven't seen Debs for a good while. Uh, and then we're going to be discussing between the two of us uh, mentoring in schools for ITT. So how much should providers assume? How much should providers stipulate? What can providers prescribe? But also what are the experiences of mentorship, its trials, its tribulations, its challenges and its rewards. Um, after we've heard from the fantastic Debs, what we're then going to do, we'll probably take a little bit of a break for the news. Uh, and then as we return in the second half of the, uh, the show, we'll be looking a little bit more closely at some of the research evidence that sits behind effective mentoring and thinking a little bit more carefully about some of those more influential research papers, ideas and discussions that have taken place over many, many thousands and thousands of years uh, around what mentorship actually constitutes. So I suppose just to lay the groundwork, um, the concept of mentoring uh, as a whole, uh, if we can sort of go back 3000 years to Telemachus and Telemachus 3,000 years ago had an advisor referred to by Homer, none other than Homer, as mentor. And the, uh, the person's purpose was to offer advice to the younger man. So I think that potentially is the point at which we can start our debate. Now, as soon as um, I'm able to get Debs to call in, uh, we'll introduce her and we'll get started with hopefully an interesting discussion. Just to introduce you to who Debs is before she manages to connect up, um, Debs Butler, so she's on Twitter as at Miss Butler Bikes, uh, is currently head of PE. Uh, I'm just going to invite 
Deb in there. Uh, she's currently head of PE at a large secondary school in Leicester. Prior to this, she held leadership roles focused on teaching, learning and continued professional development. She's been an induction tutor in two schools. And more importantly, in 2015, Debs took two years away from education to cycle around the world. Good evening, Debs. Good evening, Henry. How are you? I am very, very well. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. And Henry, you'll, you'll enjoy this one. I'm actually well, at cricket then. training. Oh. And, and I've just ducked out of nets to, uh, to join you on the call. Oh, superb. Well, you see, we had, um, this is getting to be a bit of a theme because um, not last week, but the week before I had Mike Hobbis on. Um, and of course, Mike uh, also, uh, I, I set him up as a, a previous first class cricketer with his, uh, his two games for Cambridge University. Um, and then indeed, I, I met him at cricket training up at, uh, up at the local club the night after as well. Uh, so I've got cricket training tomorrow. Who are you training tonight? Who are you working with? I'm training with Solby, so it's a club I played for before the bike trip that you just mentioned, and I haven't played for a few years, so yeah. I'm you know, a little bit nervous about the season. Actually, it's first game on Sunday, so even though this was booked in, I didn't really want to miss all of training tonight. No, and Deb, I thank you so much for giving up your time, and um, really great to chat again, um, just to sort of give our, our listener or listeners or Mrs Trellis from North Wales... A, um, <laughs> uh, a, a bit of a rundown uh, then um, Debs and I uh, I had the, the the very great pleasure of working with Debs for a, a number of years um, as we endeavoured to bring research informed and evidence informed practice to uh, to a school that we both worked in and I think we had a modicum of success in that regard I think we raised the profile a little bit but then um, in doing so uh, we also found ourselves responsible for the development of teachers and Debs uh, succeeded me as the induction tutor in the school that we were working in. And one of the reasons that I've asked Debs to join us for the, this particular recording is just because of that. I think, Debs, I hope you don't mind me saying so, the wealth of experience you've got in teacher development. Thanks, Henry. It's, it's really good. This is a really important topic. And I, I sort of probably from my bio, you know, I'm sort of back working firmly in PE at the moment. And it's really nice. So knowing that I was talking to you today to sort of think back to a lot of the things that uh, we worked on together. And, I, and you say, you know, we maybe had a bit of success in raising the profile of research in the school. It wasn't till I came away from that school to another school um, that I realised actually we perhaps had done that a little bit more than we realised. So that, but we haven't shared that before because we haven't spoken for a long time. But I, yeah, that, that it was a really interesting realization for me moving from that school to an, to another school and, and seeing that. Oh, so, that's good. I'm pleased. Little pat on the back there. There we go. Little little um, uh, internet based high five. Like that's that. right. So, yeah. um, Debs, what I've done for uh, sort of focus, and I promise I won't keep you too long from your cricket on the day that. Ben oh Stokes no, you're fine. Uh, what do you make of Stokes as new captain? Um, probably an interim measure. Yeah, have a bit of fun with yeah. it. See how he gets on. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't go great for, for for Flintoff, really, and perhaps that's the nearest comparison. But maybe we're wrong to compare them just because they're both all-rounders with beards. Yeah. Maybe that's the, <laughs> the wrong reason. <laughs> I, I, I like to consider myself as a bit of an all-rounder with a beard, just not very yeah. good. <laughs> well, so otherwise, Henry, you'd be, the, you'd be a shoo-in for the next time well, the captain sits up. You I, know. I, I think I clearly would have been. I mean, I've got an aggressive tactical mind and I, uh, you know, I, I, I th <laughs> thrive on confrontation. So, um, as we know. So, Deb, I'm going to ask, I've put some questions in the chat. And really, I, I think the first thing before um, I, I go down those, the first thing I'm going to ask you to do for me is just to sort of give our, our various listeners on whatever platforms we end up with them on 
what your experience of mentoring is and in what roles you have taken that on. Sure. Uh, so the first kind of leadership role I had in a school, which is probably about 10 years ago now, maybe a little bit more, was um, a responsibility for the NQT development program. So to sort of oversee the the mentors um, that were working with the NQTs and also sort of manage and, and lead and design that, that CPD program that sat alongside the whole school CPD. So that was a really interesting kind of first first role and, and really that started because of having you know led some of the CPD and perhaps shown an interest in that area and started to research a little sort of myself and read around things a little myself and also in that school we were um, sort of massively going at a coaching culture so this is sort of 2011 2012 around that kind of time and we worked with um, a, a, com- a coaching company um, I won't I won't shout out any brand names or anything and we had a few coaches trained in school and that was for sort of for all staff but the mentors did use some of those coaching techniques uh, when it was appropriate to do so because that was very much kind of at the performance coaching end I suppose a bit, a bit like business coaching rather than you know m- mentoring telling somebody a bit yeah. more what to do or instructional coaching which I would say sits somewhere in between the two on that scale. Yeah. So there was there was sort of a, a few different things going on there with with regards to mentoring for me. One was sort of looking at what the mentors were doing with NQTs, having previously been um, an ITT mentor myself. And the other thing was looking at uh, sort of mentoring these coaches who were going out to deliver coaching and have coaching sessions with staff members. F- following on from that, um, my role sort of became a, lot, a bit more focused around professional learning um, and sort of carrying on with the NQT program um, and also this this sort of coaching program and then coming to work with with you Henry we we looked a lot at how mentors and and how coaches or how coaching style questions I suppose might operate as a tool to improve teachers Um, and in so I have now got to a point where where actually I have mentored ITT uh, or ITE trainees in both my own subject PE and also uh, maths and certainly in the, the school we worked in together worked with trainees of virtually all subjects I would say by the time I, I sort of had, had finished that role so <laughs> I think there was, there was a point where I counted up the number of lessons I'd seen in a two-year period and it was you know almost almost tri- triple figures kind of thing and that wasn't you know all just you know sitting there for whole lessons but going into lots of different lessons having lots of people in my lessons and that was kind of a nice culture to have among, among the trainees and early career stage teachers if that kind of covers it a little bit. Excellent. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic sort of summary there, Debs, of all that experience that you've got. And I know certainly in terms of uh, a focus on mentoring, in particular with the uh, around initial teacher education, which, of course, is where I sit now. There's uh, the, the new accreditation criteria for 2024-25. Um, so we've got a massive focus on the amount of training that's done up front for mentors. I mean, I don't know. I mean, why, why would you have sat down and read it? I don't blame you if you haven't. Well, um, I think, I think Henry, I'm pleased you brought that up because one thing I was thinking about, I was thinking what, what might Henry and I talk about today is I think there's been a real shift in the time that I've uh, been working in this area from uh, um, mentoring being something that people do when they've been teaching for a few years and they're looking for a next development step maybe to something that we think oh, actually we've got to get this right because this person is helping the people who need it the most in terms of moving along forward on their teaching journey and so that might not be the person who's just been teaching for three or four years yeah it might be 
But equally, what about having our most expert, most experienced teachers more involved in mentoring? And I think I see that shift in schools. And in, in my role last year working with you at Teachers, going into different schools, I would say I saw that yeah. more. And I think that's certainly uh, one of the, the sort of perennial or almost endemic issue around mentoring is there's that juggle, isn't there? That horrible, difficult decision that a school leader must make, whereby they know that they want to invest in the future and they want to bring on high quality trainees. And that they know that that comes with the the necessity of, of of mentorship, but then it's finding the person who's got the capacity and the qualities and the capability, and I think the compassion. <laughs> I'll use that word as well. Yeah. To, to take that role on, perhaps at the expense of or in addition to a further role that they have. And yes. I, mean, I, I don't know in terms of your sort of role within coordinating. I mean, I've, I've held the similar role to yourself in terms of as induction tutor. You have to coordinate your mentors and you have to ensure that you've got the right people with the right trainee. Otherwise, you do the trainee a disservice. But how do you find sort of from a, a school perspective that initial decision making progress about who's going to do the job? That is that can be really hard, and you're right about that kind of conflict between the peop- the right person and also the right person having the right time, because that right person is actually highly likely to be in demand in other areas of school life. So uh, I think there is a there is a tension there always between the person who can give the time and the the person who is the ideal person you would like. How do you make those decisions? Well, it can be quite hard. And I suppose part of that is sort of being upfront about what's realistic for you as a school to offer. So I completed our form recently to send back to our local skit um, with, you know, what, what I thought was realistic for my department to support next year. And talking to staff in advance, you know, I think this, this, might be, this might be good for you next year, that you might be a good option to mentor a trainee next year. What is your capacity? Please be honest about this. Don't say yes to me now and then say, say no later. Or, you know, what about if we can move this to give you this bit of time? I do think that's um, that's really interesting one. And yeah. uh, certainly in, in, in schools where perhaps you're supporting a trainee that's in a subject where you don't have a subject specialist, that, that we know we've seen that happen, yeah. um, you have to think really carefully about who's best placed to provide that support. Is it going to be a subject that's really closely related or is it going to be somebody who's going to be that compassionate mentor who will spend the time finding the stuff they don't know, who will have the time to support or you can give them the time somehow? Yeah. And, and it's such a difficult balance, isn't it? I think often there's a, a, an interesting argument laid down. And again, your opinion on this, but some people would argue and whether or not they argue it for the sake of being able to justify the decision. But but some would argue that actually those who are the more experienced teachers, so 20, 25 years, 15 years under their belt, make the best mentors. Others would argue that the best person to mentor the trainee is perhaps a, a, more, a less experienced teacher who has just been through that process themselves and is therefore able to be more empathetic. Now, I, I, I think I know roughly what I think about both sides of that argument. What do you reckon? I, I sort of anticipated this question and I thought about a PE lesson and I thought if I wanted somebody to help a child who was struggling with a particular skill, would I pick the child that's just got it or the child that's absolutely fluent at it? And I thought I would pick the child that's absolutely fluent at it. But that recency of remembering what it's like um, to be a trainee and to be sort of under that pressure or perceived pressure, whether that, that's real or not, everybody's perception is their own reality there. Trainees do often feel like there's a huge amount of pressure and there is a lot to learn. Maybe there is a value in that. And I suppose um, this is another curse of the expert situation, isn't it? Like so many in teaching, probably that their best situation is that person with a lot of experience who also can remember what it felt like 
to be in that position. Yeah. And it, it's so hard. I mean, I, I know certainly sort of it, you need, I think, as a mentor, you do genuinely need to have, you, you need a toolkit of tricks, don't you? And, and you need a, a, a wider sense of the, the nuances and the, the subtleties and the contextual variations that come with your setting in order to be able to develop the trainee that in your charge. But then I suppose that goes with the argument that are we as a mentor responsible for training a trainee and developing them as a teacher in general or as a teacher for our school? Um, what do you think there? Well, that's that's a toughie because there's no, it, well, with most situations, there's not a guarantee that your trainee is going to stay at your school. Yeah. So really, you it's a bit it's a bit like preparing a child, isn't it? For when we when they leave school, you're equipping them hopefully to go out into the big bad world and be successful. And actually, um, uh, my current principal says something really lovely in interviews. He um uh, he says, you know, if you're not successful, then we wish you the very best because education is one big family, and chances are our paths will qu- will cross somewhere later in the line. So if you're not successful today, we still welcome you to part of the the wider education family and, and look forward to seeing you again sometime. And I think, yeah, that, that is that is kind of true. We are one big family. So I might not be preparing somebody for a job at my school, but I am preparing them to help a child somewhere do better. And that's really important. Lovely. I, I'm going to talk about this um, uh, in the second half of the show when I've let, released you back to the world of your nets. But um, uh, I, one of my areas, that one of the research papers that I'm going to just touch on is um, the work that Hobson and Malderez did around mentoring. Um, and they talk about five roles that a mentor has to adopt so they talk about how a mentor must adopt the role of educator, model, sponsor, psychological provider of support. And also a wonderful word, which I use an awful lot nowadays, having read it in the paper, was um, acculturator. So the definition of that being helping the mentee into a full membership of a professional culture. So perhaps we could argue that actually we are you know, ethically bound to ensure that our trainees understand the various manifestations of our role and the various realities of it in a range of settings. Um, I mean, how did you, so from your perspective as a, uh, you know, a, a fantastic lead of a subject for, for my particular skit, you were able to observe a range of mentors in different settings, but all for the same subject. Um, did you find there was uh, any sort of disparity in, um, in, you know, we're not going to sort of dig di- too deep into anything here, but a disparity in expectation or quality or ethos? Do you think that a trainee and their mentor have to have the same be- ultimate core belief in what education is there for? First of all, I'm going to say that culturator sounds a little bit like a piece of gardening equipment. You know, a bit <laughs> like um, I hear Bob next door has got a new culturator. I, I think I might borrow it, you know. Yep. That kind of thing. That's right. Uh, I think that's a really interesting question because I think people do hold quite different beliefs about what education is about. And I don't think that would prevent a trainee from being a good teacher. And I don't think that prevents a mentor from being a good mentor. Probably that's one of those situations where as long as you find some common ground yeah. that you can you can work on together, that you can agree on, that you can move forward with, that that that's hopefully going to be a moot point and probably that that would be the mentor's responsibility to drive that if you like to yeah. find that 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 sort of agreement um that's it so just run those five past me again that model was one of them wasn't it yeah educator model yeah. sponsor psychological supporter and then gardening equipment provider okay okay last one guy so in preparation for this, Henry, I did do a bit of research, you know, I have held, have held the post of research. So, of course, I went out and I, uh, this is a very narrow sample. This this study would not 
get a good methodology report right up afterwards. But basically, anyone I had in WhatsApp that had recently been mentored by anyone I knew or, or you know, was loosely connected to me in some way. So anybody who's recently been uh, through ITE or ECT processes, um, I messaged them and I said, you know, what? I'm, I'm going to speak to Henry tonight about mentoring or uh, I'm going to speak to Henry tomorrow night about mentoring um, what can he what what had the most impact on you as a, as a mentee you know what what yeah. aspect of mentoring and so many of the responses related to subject knowledge really oh yeah oh yeah like oh and, and I don't know whether that's so I said it's a narrow sample you can probably guess that this was mainly based around two subjects <laughs> and I will say that I had only mentored one of these people <laughs> uh, they were they were mostly others uh, but yeah over, overwhelmingly if I if I was to sort of code those into different topics subject knowledge came up a lot and not just I suppose the learning of subject knowledge but the learning of how to convey that subject knowledge yeah. so there was you know a, a, a reply about um uh, showing me the you know the best way to work through an example you know though you know I use that almost every day yeah think things they that that was that was what a lot of the the stuff came back with so I suppose uh, in in a sense that's more sort of pedagogical content knowledge isn't it that's sort of the old Shulman seven competencies effort sure thinking, yeah is, is it along those sort of lines so it's not just about knowing your subject but knowing how to model and convey your subject appropriately to a range of different listeners exactly that henry exactly that that kind of i suppose like decoding or translating of your subject from how you know it as an expert or as yeah. a learner yourself in a university studying your subject to how you know it as a teacher to bring the children forward in your subject yeah so m making the invisible visible a bit yeah yeah fantastic oh, that's uh, really interesting I, I genuinely didn't think that that would come out on top but i suppose then i hadn't thought about it in that way i mean from, I, I know my sort of current position is that for me my mentors are magnificent people who work in a range of settings but they are the specialists and so i i sit um you know a, a, in my little sort of control tower with my joysticks moving around my trainees from placement to placement and delivering their core training but i'm very very conscious that on my friday training i am delivering generic messages because i'm working with trainees from 10 different subjects in the same training room and so my message is only really one of the, the sort of the basic cognitive principles or the basic curriculum principles or the basic assessment principles that sit behind um, effective pedagogy and effective implementation. But I am not specifically every week providing subject specific domain specific implementation strategy. So you think that's really where the, the mentor comes into their own is that that understanding of their particular domain and mastery within it. That, that, that's certainly the impression that I got from my very small scale, just into double figures um, uh, survey responses. Obviously, if any more come in, I'll, I'll be sure to let you know while we're, while we're, while we're live tonight. Um, yes, and, and, I, and I, I suppose then I thought back to my own, um, my own time as a trainee and I had a I had a mentor um who then subsequently taught me to be a cricket umpire as well and he spent the whole nice. whole time we were on that saying yeah I had to teach those to be a teacher now I had to teach them to be an umpire uh, and I think about some of the things I say to get kids to to perform particular skills better and I think oh my goodness you are word for word saying what what he would have said but you know it works and and that that's how that's how the children move from not being able to do something to being able to do it which is kind of my ultimate goal and so yes, I I do think what what I took from my my mentor, particularly one particularly my 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 first phase mentor, was a huge wealth of of kind of pedagogical subject knowledge. 
So I, I can perform the skill myself, but what is it I'm actually going to say that's going to take this child from can't do to can do yeah. and hopefully can do next week and can do in a game situation in three weeks time and, and that kind of thing. I mean, I, I think back to my experience of, of my mentors and I, I do recall, especially my, I did PGCE um, many moons ago and I recall, you know, my both my mentors were hugely supportive personalities and they, they genuinely believed in me in, in, as a concept um, and they were both very experienced. But I think what they did exceptionally well was, I suppose, to go back to the Hobson and Maldarez five there that we've got, was they they were a sponsor for me as well in that they they opened, Maldarez defines it as the sponsor who will open doors and introduce the mentee to the right people. Um, and I think one of the skills of the mentor is that ability to to have that humility, I think, to take the trainee to somebody else who's doing it better um and and perhaps do you say you know if i if i'm mentoring an english tra- an english teacher and i'd think okay i'm okay when it comes to um poetry so please watch me and my door is always open and we'll talk about it but actually i'm i know that there's people in this department far better than me at english language paper too let's go and watch them and do you think do you think it's the mentor has to be um a little bit of a people person as well in that regard Absolutely. What's the what's the uh, what's the what's the quote here? Take takes a village to raise a child. Yeah, nice. Uh, Yeah, you you know, the the very the very worst thing we could end up with for for me being in a mental situation is another hundred Debs Butlers teaching PE. And and if I if I'm the only thing, (laughs) but if you end up with you know if if I'm the only person giving the trainee input as a mentor, that there's a very real risk of that happening. And I, I think you're right about that kind of almost like a gatekeeper role, I suppose. And certainly as an induction tutor, and, and maybe you felt this as well in that role, that that I would say is a, is really important knowledge to have. When, when you're when you're that person in a school who's working with ITEs, ECTs, maybe some other, maybe sort of other other teachers who like unqualified teachers and staff, that kind of thing. You need you need to have that kind of broad overview of what's going on in school, who's really good at this, so that when when somebody needs to see someone who's doing that or needs to talk to somebody who's who's doing this really well you, you know where to signpost them because certainly the answer is not always going to be behind my office door yeah uh, so I'm going to go uh, I, I quite like using the, the these five statements as, a, as some framework and um, I've got some questions that I'm going to come back to for you Deb but I'll, let's go to we've talked there about the the acculturator the garden implement we've yep. talked about the, the model and, and I think that goes with the educator as well you touched earlier on about coaching um, and yeah. that actually, Hobson and Maldorez mentioned coaching in that. And I know there's a huge amount of discussion. I mean, we, we can't open the can of instructional coaching worms tonight because we'd be here for hours. But um, in terms of their last one, they talk about the need for the mentor, the successful mentor, to be a provider of psychological support. And now that they define that as providing the mentee with a safe place to release emotion or let off steam. So, I mean, in, is that also a a core consideration for any school or any induction tutor picking a mentor? Do they need to be a person who's already got the capacity to deal with difficult situations and to to manage highly charged emotional settings? Or is that something that can be taught and learned by a mentor during a training period? That probably depends how much they've got to learn to be that person. Um, I certainly think that so, some people will some people coming into mentoring will have a great deal more experience than others at having difficult conversations and that was a lot of the work that we did we did together Henry and then uh, yeah. sort of I carried on in the school we worked in was um, looking at how middle leaders 
have those conversations about lessons with all, all sorts of teachers, not not just um, trainees. Yeah. Uh, and I think being able to manage that conversation it really effectively it is certainly a skill. But I do think for most people, most te- most teachers, that is a that is a learnable skill. When you're talking about it in in the time frame, do, do I think somebody can go if they if they are a completely non-compassionate person? Luckily, you don't meet too many teachers like this. I don't think who is just going to be impatient with somebody who is not going to absorb some of those those sort of emotional worries or whatever. Can they can they go to one training session on a Monday night in September and support a, a support a trainee for the rest of the year? Maybe, maybe that's a bit of an ask. Um, <laughs> Do, do I think that over, over time m- most teachers could develop these kinds of skills? Yes. Do I think they'll need support and time to do that? Absolutely. And probably that support's going to look like watching other people do it well. It's going to be having people watch them. They're going to have to be aware that if that's an aspect of their practice that isn't so strong, they will have to be aware that you know perhaps a good thing to do would be to record themselves and watch themselves back or have somebody watch them because yeah. otherwise there's not going to be a movement forwards in that. I don't know. Do, do you, do you find you meet many non-compassionate people in education, Henry? I, I'm not sure I do. Um, I, I think everyone's um, got the compassion deep down, haven't they? But I think uh, yeah. I, perhaps I, I'm being unfair in using the word compassion. Perhaps what I do mean is um, because, again, sort of the, the final caveat that Hobson offered up was that some mentors through no fault of their own, and it might be because they are under pressure, it might be because they have significant other um, aspects of their role to juggle. It might be that they're, you know, frustrated. It's, you know, it's not all on the mentor. The trainee must be a, a recipient for and a vehicle for the development of feedback. They have to. It's a two-way street. But Hobson and Maldres, they they talk about how sometimes a mentor can get to the point of that they they adopt the stance of a judge. Right. So they, okay. They they judge mentor. Um, and yeah. in doing so, what they do is they reveal too readily. Um, or too often their judgments on on things like the planning, the teaching. So the feedback, the comments become, they turn into criticism as opposed to, to constructive comment. Yeah, as opposed to critique, right. Yeah. I, su- I-, I suppose maybe something there is, is there a process in the school for the mentor to have somebody to talk to if they're finding the mentoring is getting difficult? And if they're finding they're getting to that point, is there another layer of support for them? Because re- really that sounds like the situation where the mentor sort of saying, like, you know, I have, have asked the trainee to do this. Uh, you, know, I've, you know, I've suggested this, I've suggested that, and still we're not moving forwards. Maybe through nobody's fault, but perhaps it's a mentor's reached the end of their capacity to improve or they've reached the end of the time they have available to improve a certain point or they feel like they have. Yeah. And maybe there the 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 issue or the, the solve is a really good idea for mentors in school about what do what do you do next if you're struggling? What what do you do next if you don't feel like you you have a, a for whatever reason you are working well with your trainee or your trainee is not working well with you? Maybe if that's how you perceive it, if you're in that position. Um, and I, I would like to think that that's something we've we've both done in that role is be that layer of support for the mentors. Yeah. You know, if, if you are struggling that's the point you come to me or or ideally when if you even start to struggle a little bit you come to me because it's much easier to deal with things like that early doors than to let them become that judgment situation that you've described which would be unpleasant for a trainee yeah definitely so so um i mean i'm thinking at the moment especially uh, you know we have the new core content and early career frameworks the word mentor appears significantly especially in the core content framework um, uh, you know, through ex- discussion with experienced colleague, discussion with mentor, etc. And I know 
from personal experience that schools are finding the allocation of and the support of mentors particularly difficult to manage at the moment because of you know uh, staffing constraints we know that there's a, a fall in recruitment into teaching we know that there's that continued departure from teaching i discussed some of the figures a few weeks ago um but how much then do you think, and I'm going to go to one of my uh, my questions I put at the top, was that what can a provider have the right to ask of mentors in schools in terms of the commitment that they're able to give, not only perhaps to their own sort of training programs and development, but also the expectation of them as a train as a mentor in school? What 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 can providers justifiably do you think ask for? I think there's, there's probably two sides to that because whatever you're asking for, you also have to support. It's kind of like a money where your mouth is situation, isn't it? Yeah. So the, if you're asking your mentor to do more things, spend more time with their trainee, do whatever, there also needs to be a back of, backup of either, you know, we're going to make sure you have that time available so you're not having to cut back on something else or perhaps even you know we're going to make sure we prepare you really well for this by front loading a load of training into the previous academic year or the early part of the year so that you are really well equipped to do this and it doesn't begin to feel like a a, a whole load of work has been has been dropped on top of you Um, I also think there's probably a, a relationship with the staff from the provider so thinking about you know uh working with you uh as a subject lead I, th- I think I probably always felt that I could ask for support if needed and probably making sure that that, that is in place because you, chances are the people you've got working with your trainees are also holding other roles within school or uh, other have other commitments in the school. So I think I think that's a really that's always going to be a really hard balance for you as a provider, Henry, because the, that, that, those mentors are going to have com- competing pressures of their school. I suppose even just basic things like being really upfront about calendar issues, early doors, you know, and publishing your calendar really early. This is when our stuff's on. This is when our training's on. You know, if you've got, if you can see clashes, tell us now while we can still say something about it. Don't leave it to two weeks before and say, oh, actually, no, I've got, I've got this on for school. And having that positive relationship that, that you have with schools to be able to say, oh, actually, I, I know you've got staff training tonight, but we'd really like the mentors to come to this session. So maybe if they can join it remotely, at least that would be a real help for us. So, I, mean, I don't know if that really of, answers the question. It does, yeah. I, I think there's so many. I mean, often, I mean, I, I, I know that my, my one of my significant failings is that I, I ground too much of my practice in in what seems to work on paper, and I, I, I don't have perhaps an empathy with the, you know, the the, the full time main pay six teacher who's also the mentor. Because, you know, that, that's a significant amount of work. And then mentorship as a vocation is essentially just a, a another highly charged aspect of their role. And so where I'm thinking, oh, wouldn't it be great if they attended this? And wouldn't it be great if we, we gave deep and rich instruction in these areas? And actually, they're probably all they can do is to manage to make that hour meeting a week, do that lesson observation. And in doing so, there's a trade-off with other aspects of their, their skill set, their profession, I suppose. So, I think maybe maybe something there around it could some of those aspects of the program be be optional, or you know dip into this, or you know we're going to do this live at this time, and it'd be great if some of you can join us because it'll help facilitate the discussion. But we'll also record it, and you can watch about later. I think you know the, almost the pandemic's given us a load of tools like that, hasn't it? Like I, it didn't phase me at all to think, okay, well I'm going to do a podcast live on the side of a cricket pitch. I'm just going to borrow this particular set of headphones I know will work from the music teacher, and we're job done. Kind of thing. We, we've all kind of adapted to a slightly different way of working and 
you know the downside of those sort of uh you know not being live in a session is that interaction mm. but maybe sometimes listening to it back it is go- is going to be just as useful and it, it, it is a really hard tension because for some people mentoring is going to be something they're really interested in I, I find it really interesting i i really enjoy working with early career teachers it's something i've done you know in, in every role i've had for the last 10 years really i'll, I'll be an, an, an ect mentor next year yeah. and for some other people, it might, you know, it just be something they do because they've been asked to or something they do because they recognize that they should because they have the capability to do it. So you're right that asking that asking that teacher who's maybe got no other responsibility points in the school, so no other timetable reduction, who's teaching in some schools that's still going to be 22 out of 25 lessons or 21 out of 25 lessons, <clears throat> they get an hour, or they, so one lesson less for their... Um, for their mentoring session, it it is an ask. You're right, and I, uh, it is. Yeah, I mean, I, it is I, rewarding I, though. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. It's it's. I, I think it's got to be. Uh, the mentor has to have the choice to do the role, don't they? I mean, I, I've, I've yes. been made aware of a um uh, a school relatively recently that I've heard of, um, that anyone who had a TLR was also expected to take on a mentoring role, and that was the way okay. the mentor was chosen. And I can I can see a, a slight logic somewhere flawed behind that um, around the fact that they've got a TLR and they must be reasonably proficient in an area of their practice um, and and they have responsibility so therefore they are you know a, they have a natural sort of um, authenticity that validates what they say but I, to me that, that that struck me as almost um, you know I don't know it almost did, pulling the heart out of the, the reason why people want to mentor. And, and I think people want to mentor because they do value that opportunity, as you said earlier on, to develop people as, as effective teachers and not to craft them in their own image, but to, to just ensure that we're just getting great people in and doing a great job. I, th- I think you're right, and actually, I'm I'm always pleased when I have conversations with people, and they and they do say, you know, uh, even if I think I think they'd be great, and they do say, oh, actually, that that's not going to be for me this year because I'm doing this, this, and this. I won't be able to give the trainee the time and effort and energy they they deserve. I think, well, you know, thank you for being upfront about that. I might I might have to come back to you if I if, if I'm if I'm, <laughs> if I'm stuck, but 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 thank you for your honesty at this point because it it, it can be demanding. Yeah. I mean, some, it can also be a total joy and can not be demanding in any way. I'm sure. I'm sure you can think of a trainee. I'm thinking of from a couple of years ago, where just every time I I spoke to this trainee, I enjoyed the conversation. We had a great time, and um, it, you know, it didn't feel like work at all because we'd get into some really meaty pedagogical issues. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think it always can feel tiring, or it can feel like something else you've got to do. There are times where where it could feel like that for mentors, and and that can be hard. And that can be hard for you to manage as a provider because you obviously want your trainees to have a really consistent experience. Um, you want them all to benefit from that really kind of high quality, positive relationship. And there's actually a sort of a, a reduced amount you you can really do to intervene there, other than getting alongside the uh, the induction tutor or whoever's overseeing uh, the mentors in, within the school if you don't <clears throat> feel that's happening. Yeah, and I think that sort of. Um what providers that was going to be my sort of next question really but i'm very conscious of how how long i'm keeping you so what the it, we're thinking about what providers can justifiably expect from their mentors before they even begin to work with them i mean there's the itt mentor standards i yeah i don't know how many sort of providers schools networks etc refer to these anymore but they're not all that old 
Um, but um, I've seen them used as a framework for sort of mentor selection, whereby um, providers and, and um, teaching schools have asked for these proposed mentor to be almost rated against or, or um, sort of compared to the, the four mentor standards as stipulated by the DFE. I mean, is that something that you've ever, have you, do you refer to those or use them at any point? Um, I have used them. I have referred to them. Though I have to say, interestingly, is of oh, I was I, I was I said I was asked how many trainees we could support uh, in the faculty next year, and I actually named my two mentors having having spoken to them in, in advance about it, and I and I didn't refer to any document. And maybe now I'm thinking I should have done, but equally I thought about who would be appropriate to do this and who would have the capacity to do this. And I spoke to one member of staff who said not not in phase one, yes in phase two um because of the other roles that they hold in the school and so maybe that and that's a slightly arbitrary who i think would be good and maybe that's not really good enough but equally i i've made that decision based on what i know about this person's teacher what i know about how the, the these people work with their colleagues what i know about how um they would be capable of developing others yeah. so maybe that is enough and i think we, i'm not sure have- we have to trust judgment, don't we? At, at, at a key, at, 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 it comes down to trusting the people who made the decisions, doesn't it? I think, and just in the school settings in particular, from my perspective as a provider, I must trust my schools to make the right choice. Um, and I suppose, yeah, there, therein is the, uh, the the joy and the challenge of the particular the, the mentorship as a as a vocation, I suppose. So. I'm going to go. I'm going to. I've got two questions for you, Deb. The first one is a um, a sort of more nebulous concept that probably doesn't have an answer, but in in as you know fewer minutes as you wish to do so, you can give me your response. The second one is is a very simple one. The first question then is: Is mentoring um, a whole school role? Should it be a whole school's responsibility to mentor? Is mentoring a deve- should it be developed as a whole school recognised role? Should it be a team of committed mentors within every school? Uh, so do you mean they're, they're sort of constantly mentoring everybody or when ITTs go to a school, they know there's a team and they can go to any one of the team? I, I'm thinking more around the fact that we, the profile of the mentor is raised to one whereby it is almost a named role in school. It is a respected and gotcha. highly regarded role. Uh, I Well... I think it should be a highly regarded school, and I think I, I would I would like to think that we did to, to sort of together champion how important we felt mentors were. Um, I suppose it would it it you know there is probably some quite straightforward sort of day to day things schools could do there, like making sure all staff members know who the mentors are, know who they're mentoring, all that kind of thing. That would be quite useful because it would also probably raise slightly raise the profile of the trainees in a school, and in a in a in a smaller school like we worked in, actually we always knew who the trainees were, all that kind of thing. Um, I. Uh, worked with the trainees at my current school in a session today and it was the first time I met some of them because it's just such a large school and geographically they work very far away from where I work (laughs) so uh, which I know sounds a little bit ridiculous in some ways but you know is the case Um, so that's a really interesting one I think the, the more we do to champion mentors almost the more we do to champion the trainees so that that couldn't be a bad thing surely excellent um and there's a. Yeah. Um, I'm going to uh, talk about this in the second half, but um, the Langdon quotes that um, for mentoring to have a positive impact, it needs to be premised on all stakeholders in the school community being learners, including leaders. Expectations need to be explicit, 
aimed at harnessing the capacity of all to participate on a range of formal and informal levels. So I suppose you, then... Go on. I was going to say, do you feel like there we're drifting, drifting into the territory? You know, that's a wider discussion around school culture. If your school's got a really good learning culture and everybody's ready to learn, then all of those things would be kind of embraced and just part of your day-to-day school life. Every, everybody's willing to accept their vulnerabilities. You know, it doesn't matter who comes into your classroom for a chat about your lesson or it doesn't matter who you talk to if you've got a problem um, or some things are going well and you want to say, yeah, look at this resource I prepared. It you know, absolutely did the job for this class. You know, They were stuck here and now I've moved them forward because of this task I designed. If you've got that learning culture, you, you have all of those things. Yeah, excellent. I'm going to ask you two more questions, Deb. One is a little bit um, cheeky, and it's do you still, when you observe trainees, time how long it takes them to smile? Uh, yeah. Well, I haven't observed any trainees this year, but I absolutely would do that. <laughs> I should have known that would come up. Um, that is a true story. And I, I once watched a trainee who didn't smile for 17 minutes and was gobsmacked when I told them so at the end. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do it now. I, you do you yeah. <laughs> it's such a small thing but people people don't realize because they are actually and i see you know, i say i'm saying to you, we're having a nice time because you, you didn't show the kids that obviously i don't say it quite that flippantly but um i think that's so important because it's just such a human thing to do and uh, because you're so busy uh, sometimes uh, as a teacher thinking about all the things you've got to remember all the things you've got to say especially when you know quite high stakes perhaps your visiting subject lead or your induction shooter is watching you I appreciate you're still suddenly feeling a little bit under pressure but uh, yes smile, <laughs> just a little smile relaxes everybody sometimes so yes yes I would still do that yeah Excellent. <laughs> somebody, somebody should tell the somebody should tell our new ECT for next year that <laughs> I'm, I'm pleased to hear it and don't change <laughs> and um, my only other question, and before I let you get back to the cricket, Deb, is if we have um, people who are either listening in or going to download and listen later, and they, they, they like mentoring, they either want to be a mentor or they enjoy the role and they want to learn more about it, would you have a particular essential read, be it a research paper, a synthesis, or indeed a published text, that you would guide them towards as something you think that is really a, a great read for mentors? Oh, that's a great question, Henry. Now, I've prepped a lot of stuff for this, which you haven't asked me about, and I didn't even think to prep a great read. I should have known that was coming. Um, I suppose something that would give you a lot of things to talk about with your trainee would be something maybe, and and it's not not too long, it's very practical, be something like the Ambition Institute Learning Curriculum document. Yeah. So immediately, I, I know we, we've talked about it one together, immediately you've got quite a lot there on uh, sort of things to do with how children learn, but with some practical examples. And they're great documents, aren't they? I, I think just the way in which it sums up um, a, a wonderful synthesis of uh, a range of research. I think that's a really, really good call. Debbie, you're still there. I think on that final recommendation, we might have lost Debs. Um, but to be fair to Deb, uh, she's given up a significant amount of her time there this evening um, on the side of her cricket training to talk to us about the quality of great mentors, the expectations that schools can have around mentors, what providers can expect from school-based mentors, and uh, a few wonderful insights into actually how challenging the role of mentor can be. So um, can't Ooh, thank her sorry. live, but I'm gonna thank her. Oh, I've just, just rejoined, I think, Henry, sorry. This evening. And I think it'd be worth getting Deb back another time to go through those things that she prepped that I didn't ask her about. So an absolutely fantastic conversation there. And um, we wish Deb's the very, very best for Take the care, Henry. cricket season. 
And as I say, hopefully we can get her back onto the show um, in a few weeks' time, perhaps, to uh, talk about those things that I didn't ask. Oh, Deb, are you back? I think I am back, yeah. I'm not sure what hey. happened there. So it's great, um, great to have been with you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Deb. I was just saying, uh, if you've got so many things that um, you prepped for that I didn't ask, I'm just going to have to get you back on the show. It's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll have to save what, what people didn't like about mentoring. And so yeah. I did ask trainees that as well. So, oh, well, that's, um, that's you know, if you, if you want to dig into that someday. And, and actually, that wasn't about compassion either. Oh, well, there we go. That's, an, that's an, an entire other show that we've got set up and ready to go. So wonderful stuff. Deb, as I said, um, while you were seemingly offline, thank you so much for giving up your time. Get back to the cricket. We wish you well for the season and hopefully uh, bring you back on in a few weeks' time and we'll talk about all those other things that you've got written down. Uh, great stuff. Take care, Henry. Take care, Deb. Lovely to speak again. See you, you soon. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. And so there we go. We have uh, a fantastic conversation there with Debs Butler. So what a fantastic opening hour to the show. Uh, we've dug down into a huge amount of material there. We've raised an awful lot of key points and a few really, really insightful aspects around the role of the mentor. And in particular, I think I, I always keep a, a post-it note or other, other sticky note brands are available um, next to me while we do these shows. So I can just make a, a little record of certain topics that might arise that we can discuss in future shows because they're clearly important to people. Um, one of which has just cropped up or cropped up earlier on in the conversation with Deb's about coaching. And Deb talked about coaching, performance coaching and instructional coaching and also um, other elements of coaching uh, as a whole. And there's so many crossovers with coaching and mentoring, but there are also so many explicit and separate parts. And um, I think it's sometimes very easy to sort of mentoring to go through a lethal mutation into something called coaching when it really isn't the same thing. And then aspects of mentoring that are indeed actual instructional coaching. So they maybe that's something that we will uh, we'll go down into uh, on a future show. So um, before we break for the news, uh, I'm just going to uh, top end again and put another quotation in. I do like my quotations, as you know. So we opened with Genesis. We're going to go to an Epicurist now. We're going to go to Brillat Savara, who said, uh, listen to me then with attention and learn so that you will have no more need to blush at your creations. And I think that's a rather nice summary of what it is, perhaps, that certain mentors might think an appropriate way to go. OK, so I'm now going to take you to the news uh, and I will be back with you after the break. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. 
No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. New research conducted by the education charity Magic Breakfast has shown a patchwork of free school breakfast provision is leading some children to come to school hungry. The charity has called for an urgent £75 million funding boost for school breakfasts in England and a similar amount from the Scottish Government. Currently, Wales is the only UK nation with a country-wide, centrally funded free breakfast provision. The NAHT School Leaders Union General Secretary Paul Whiteman said, We agree that more funding is urgently needed to combat child hunger and that improving breakfast club provision for pupils could be an important part of that effort. Hunger is a real concern for school staff who regularly see children arriving in the morning without having eaten and therefore not ready to learn. Research carried out by Airlie shows that 97% of UK schools monitored in the Let School Breathes project experienced levels of PM 2.5 that exceeded the safe norms set out by the World Health Organisation. Airlie started installing air pollution sensors in schools across the UK in April 2021. A spokesperson for Airlie said, Pupils are exposed to high concentrations of NO2 and PM2.5, 
mainly during travel to school and in school playgrounds. Airlie's outdoor monitors have been positioned in such a way to be able to determine what kind of air students breathe when they are near the school building. Thanks to the data we have collected, we know the situation is far from perfect, but the first step towards pollution-free schools has been made. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. And welcome back. So, welcome back to the second half of this evening's Twilight Show with me, Henry Saunson. Um, if you're just joining us or you are listening to the second half of this uh, on a download, then you missed an absolutely fantastic chat with the wonderful Miss Butler Bikes, uh, who we had on in the first half of the show, giving her experience, her insight and her expertise view on mentoring. And that is something that we are going to consider for the last half hour of this evening's show. Um, it's a massively broad topic. We all know that. And it's also a massively divisive topic. Uh, there are some schools, some settings through no fault of their own, through um, being stretched and challenged, find that mentoring actually is just yet another thing to have to deal with. There are some schools who are able and have the capacity to really invest heavily in mentorship and its qualities. Um, we're focused less on the institutional and more on the personal. Uh, and I'm really, really interested in your experiences as a mentor. So if at any point you'd like to uh, text in and give your views on mentorship, either you have been mentored, um, you are a mentor now, uh, you want to get into mentoring in the future, or you have had, um, through other experiences, contact with those who have been mentored or are indeed mentors currently, just let us know your views. All right. Um, more than happy to receive a range of input on what it is that people think very, you know, with regards to this rather topical subject. Um, I'm going to lead back in to the second half of the show with yet another quotation because we know I love them. Um, and this time I'm looking at Corthagen, Fred Corthagen. Um, and uh, a paper of his from 2003 where we're looking at great quality teacher education and high quality teaching. And he says that taking the models of levels of change seriously requires that teacher educators stay in touch with their own core qualities as a prerequisite for promoting the development of core qualities in prospective teachers. So if, like Corthagen, you feel that prospective teachers need to have promoted within them their core qualities, and that is only done by shining a light um, as a mentor on your own internal belief systems, how can we best ensure that when we act in the role of mentor or when we are responsible for creating mentors, um, that we are doing the right thing by the right people at the right time? So what I'm going to look and spend a little bit of time doing uh, in the second half of the show is thinking about some of the research evidence that sits behind effective mentoring and in particular where a lot of uh, sort of research evidence has taken us. Now, I alluded to uh, earlier on the DFE standards for ITT mentors um, came out of the Carter Review of 2015, I believe. And there are four standards for mentors in ITT, initial teacher training, according to the DFE. We have, first of all, standard one, which is the 
personal qualities. And that requires a mentor to establish trusting relationships, to model high standards of practice, and to empathise with the challenges a trainee faces. We have standard two, which is teaching in general. And that, in their wording, requires the mentor to support trainees to develop their teaching practice in order to set high expectations and to meet the needs of all pupils. Thirdly, we've got the professionalism aspect here, where the mentor is required to induct the trainee into professional norms and values, help them to understand the importance of the role and responsibilities of teachers in society. And then finally, we have standard four, which is self-development and working in partnership. And within that standard, it is stipulated that mentees, or mentors, apologies, must continue to develop their own professional knowledge, which Debs touched on earlier, didn't she? She talked about the need for, or the, the, her basic research showed that mentees appreciated a mentor who displayed significant subject knowledge. And it also goes on to talk about how the, along with that knowledge must be the skills and understanding and invest time in developing good working relationships within relevant ITT partnerships. And I think that last one is perhaps the rub. It's really, really difficult, isn't it, for schools to ensure that they've actually able to release the mentor for an appropriate amount of time that pays meet adoration to the requirements of the role that they're being asked to fulfil. So the role of the mentor, I feel, at all phases needs to consider the basics. It needs to consider essentially at any point, what is the evidence behind the suggested idea? What is the pedagogical principle that drives that idea? And ultimately, what is the aim of introducing that idea, that concept or that strategy into the trainee's practice? Um, I'd be interested to know what your views are with regards to that. Now, other areas that I wanted to explore in a little bit more depth and detail. Um, I talked earlier on about Hobson and Maldarez. Now, Hobson and Maldarez um, did some work uh, the paper that I particularly referred to a lot around in back in 2013, and they began to examine the role of the mentor and the definition of mentoring within teaching. Um, and they defined mentoring within teacher education as a one-to-one -one relationship between a relatively inexperienced teacher, who would be known as the mentee, and a relatively experienced one, who would be known as the mentor. And the aims behind this are to support the mentee's learning and development as a teacher and their integration into an acceptance by the cultures of the school and the profession. And when Deb and I were talking earlier on, we talked about whether or not uh, the mentor is curating, creating, developing, fostering a professional for the particular environment in which they work or whether they are actually looking at what we call that bigger picture and thinking a little bit more carefully about the creation, um, the, the manifestation of a trainee for the wider profession that is teaching. And Hobson and Maldarez actually state that they see mentoring as a necessarily developmental activity with the emphasis on empowering and enabling mentees to do things for themselves. So really, sisters are doing it. Well, that's a song. I'm going to stop. What they are looking at doing there is promoting to us the role of the mentor as someone who is able to pass on the baton. Um, and 
with that comes a significant amount of responsibility. We do know from the research that mentoring can have significant impact. So there's some work done by Ingersoll and Strong in 2011, and that work showed that mentors can help enable specific teaching practices and can retain teachers in the profession. So a great mentor has the ability to improve retention. And we talked and touched on recruitment and retention in the very first show that I did for Teachers Talk Radio, um, oh, best part of a month ago now, which uh, is amazing, really. And Ingersoll and Strong found in the studies they reviewed that there was empirical support for the claim that support and assistance for beginning teachers has a positive impact on three sets of outcomes. They thought that teacher commitment and retention was improved, that teacher classroom instructional practice was improved, and more importantly, perhaps, student achievement was improved. And that last one, perhaps we lose sight of, don't we? Because when we're working with beginning service, you know, pre-service teachers, trainee teachers, um, we're perhaps more focused on them, but actually the ultimate goal is to create them as effective practitioners who can then go on to enable the best possible outcomes for their students. And if we're not focused on the outcomes for students as a, a, a an impact of great mentoring and teacher development, then perhaps we've got something a little bit wrong. Now, Ingersoll and Strong also gave us this theory of teacher development in four stages, and they talk quite significantly about the, the role of pre-service preparation. Um, and that was stage one, followed by induction, followed by improved classroom teaching practice and teacher retention, followed then by the improved student learning and growth. And I've touched on in recent times um, how important it is to ensure that we have a sort of shared language. We have a, uh, an ability to communicate effectively across all levels of teacher support. And one thing that perhaps I was going to ask Deb about and then uh, time got away from us, um, but I'd be interested again in your views, and I think I'll, I'll refer to this back in another show, is what becomes the lowest common denominator for language in mentor-mentee relationships? Is it a requisite that the mentor is able to seemingly dumb down or lower the pitch and register and, and sort of academic quality of their talk, their dialogue, to suit the developing needs of the ostensibly novice trainee who may not be familiar with a raft of terminology and a raft of reference points? Or is it the role of the, the trainee to quickly and efficiently bring themselves up to speed with the language of the mentor? and to meet them on their level? Does there need to be a halfway house? And so I've been looking quite closely recently at the language used in things like the early career and core content frameworks. And there's maybe perhaps reference to certain pedagogies, certain aspects of curriculum design that may not be tripping off the tongue of uh, a teacher of 20 years because they do it, but that's not what they call it. And so I think this is something that we have the opportunity to explore in greater depth. Again, if you've got an opinion, do please let me know what you think. Now, in terms of being able to broaden our horizons when it comes to effective mentoring and when it comes to knowing where to look if we want to find out more, um, I'm uh, going to guide you around a few papers that I think are really, really worth a look when it comes to developing yourself in mentorship. First and foremost, and funnily enough, uh, actually, uh, Deb mentioned this, she talked about the learning curriculum documents. 
And I would strongly recommend that anybody gets hold of a copy um, of the learning curriculum uh, 2.0, the most recent iteration, as a great starting point for discussion, either in the role of mentor with you and your mentee, or if looking to work more closely in partnership with uh, a sector in which trainees are being developed. I would also then bring into this aspects around deliberate practice um, and in particular thinking about the way that we practice with purpose um, and because of that just sort of building in aspects of this very sort of focused approach to trainee development where we make sure that we've got this really really clear idea of what it is that each target set for a mentor, uh, set for a trainee is designed to do. So if we go to, let's think about, in fact, a little bit more closely, the idea of deliberate practice. Um, you may be familiar with it, you may not, it doesn't matter. But essentially, what we can do is we as a teacher educator and perhaps as a mentor can introduce deliberate practice by ensuring that practice happens, making it shine, and then making sure that support we design for it actually works. And there's a clear framework um, around deliberate practice through the work of people like Ericsson, um, Deans for Impact, uh, Lemov, Lampert, lots there, talking about how a deliberate practice approach will uh, offer training which challenges trainees, or indeed challenges existing teachers. It's focused, it's closely, you know, it's small bites, feedback is offered, it's clearly sequenced and ultimately it produces and therefore depends on, as Ericsson uh, would suggest, what we call effective mental representations. And that's uh, an element drawn down from the work by Deans for Impact, um, where they are exploring how, in fact, um, a practice with purpose approach combines the emerging science of teacher expertise with teacher preparation. So they say, and I think this is quite important really, that pre-service teacher preparation cannot produce experts immediately. In fact, developing true expertise takes more hours than any teacher preparation programme can possibly provide. But Deans for Impact will argue that novice teachers who've had the opportunity to practice in a deliberate way are on the path to being ready to teach and to develop deeper expertise over time and so the practice with purpose work explored research areas it was still under development i mean the document was published six years ago now 2016 gosh um but this really did pull down in on the science of expertise and it also drew down on a range of other principles so their five principles of deliberate practice uh were that first of all we must push beyond one's comfort zone now, that can be a difficult thing to do when it comes to new teachers because you don't want to make them feel out of water. The second principle was that we work towards well-defined specific goals. Now, that's easier from the concept of the mentor, isn't it? Because hopefully you would find that your trainee is working through a curriculum as determined by their provider or as determined by the early career framework. And therefore, there are specific curriculum-related goals to which they can indeed be working towards. That's the easier part. The third phase is the focus, the intent and intense focus on practice activities. So that's where the role of the mentor as the 
the person who understands the setting and the environment is able to provide opportunities for the trainee to go and see other people, to observe practice with a clear and specific focus, and to make sure that week on week, perhaps there's a real aim for what it is that they're doing in their teaching. The fourth element of the deliberate practice model encourages um, the receipt and response to high quality feedback. So again, there's a call for ITT providers, perhaps those in initial teacher education, to ensure that the mentors who are responsible for delivering the support and delivering the feedback are able to do so from a position of perceived expertise. And then finally, we're looking within the principles of deliberate practice to develop this mental model of expertise. If we just take each principle in turn, first of all, the fact that we are trying to present a challenge that pushes novices just beyond their current ability. Now that means that we do need to be aware of their current ability because otherwise we'll pitch our targets and our efforts too low. But the fact that a novice teacher will face a significant challenge very early on, we can't just leave them, as the as Deans for Impact say, we can't just leave their learning to chance. They're not going to overcome uh, challenges and learn necessary skills if it's, it's, it's all left as guesswork. So what mentors can do and what teacher development programmes can do is design practice experiences. So there are clear goals, but there is a clear and purposeful trajectory. So that's a difficult word to say, isn't it? Trajectory. That's better. Uh, so it's evident to all involved that actually the trainee is working towards a really, really clear idea, which leads into the second principle of deliberate practice. These goals that have been set, they're well defined, they're specific, they are measurable. And we've got a lot of practical implications here as well for us as mentors, as teacher educators, as induction tutors, as curators of mentor support, that we need to ensure our mentors have an ability to design practice activities that focus on improving particular aspects of teaching. We can't just expect them to week by week help our trainees get a little bit better in a broad and general way. No, we must have tight, close focus. We must have sequenced goals. We must be working from basic up through into more sophistication. And therein lies the power of the provider to design a curriculum that enables and supports mentors to focus trainee development in such a way as to see that clear progression and indeed to measure those goals and use those measures as deans for impact state to inform the choice of future goals. So we've got this real sense of the trainees targets their specific contextually aware nuanced targets set by their domain experts as the central point around which this cycle of observation feedback and development will go as we move through the practice with purpose model we end up at the point of intensification um, and we have again a deliberate practice level, which is around this significant level of focus and conscious effort on the part of the novice. Um, and I think that is a, a really quite a powerful implication because we're expecting, you know, as I said to Deb earlier in the, the show, it's a two way street. The mentor will give a significant amount of what they've got and will be the best version of themselves they can be that day. But we do expect that from the trainee as well. And um, Deans for Impact argue that what might happen around 
intent focus on practice two mechanisms you've either got your decomposition mechanism which is isolating specific elements of classroom practice or it's your approximation your simulation of teaching where you're imitating a situation and providing experience but what you're doing in the simulation model is you're lowering the stakes okay and that i think is really important as we take away some of the pressure that naturally sits around teacher training and teacher development I'm just going to pause there for a moment because I'm going to respond to Leanne. Thank you, Leanne, for uh, for joining us this evening. And thank you for raising the point here that you told us that you were, you were asked to be a mentor, but you weren't given training on how to be a mentor, okay? Or indeed, how to train a new teacher. So I think that's, a, that's quite a an interesting point to dig into, isn't it, really? Because this goes back to a little bit about what Deb and I were talking about in the first half of the show, about some of the institutional issues that pervade mentorship and perhaps can lead to its lethal mutation as a construct. Because ultimately, we want mentors to mentor because they have not only the capacity to do so, but the compassion and the desire to do so. And if you're asked to mentor somebody, it's very difficult to say no, because actually the, being a mentor can open up many avenues of, around professional development. And in fact, it is indeed, I think, a, a pleasure to watch somebody learn to teach because I steal many an idea from my trainees. They enact ideas and put theory into practice far more efficiently, relevantly and readily than I can at the moment. But unless we actually support our mentors, as Leanne has indicated there, to do the job, and to help them understand the requisite aspects of the role, not just from a, a seemingly personal qualities aspect, but also the simple logistical grasp of such things as paperwork, administration, psychological support, difficult conversations. And I suppose the big one, and this is something that I'm going to come to in a future show, is how to observe and give feedback to trainee teachers because that can be a very, very, very difficult thing to get right. You want to be supportive. You want to be positive. You want to help them understand and to realise and remind them of why they're doing what they're doing. But it can be very difficult when you're not sure what the level of expectation is around their ability, and you're not sure what you should be saying if it really wasn't what you expected. Um, uh, Leanne, you, you say that you had a difficult conversation for sure. Trainee who wanted to know why she wasn't given any outstanding in term one. Well, I, I don't know your trainee, Leanne, but I'd go as far as to say is they're not going to be outstanding in term one because they've only been against the criteria for 12 weeks. No one's outstanding at anything after 12 weeks. Um, but again, I think this, and I won't get onto too much of a soapbox here, is where phrasing like outstanding or, or judging trainees against teacher standards from the outset of a course is a flawed model because what is happening there is that you are setting people up for failure that is simply a point of semantics there is no way that anybody can be outstanding in any aspect of the teacher standards all the time anyway and the very word outstanding sends me into to, to little twitchy shivers I, I would rather consider that they are moving towards effectiveness they're developing a more effective range of skills in that particular area. But if teacher training, those within it simply see it as a strive to be the first person to reach outstanding practice, the next person they will be is the one that burns out first. 
there is no way that we can uphold and continue to deliver constantly perceived, you know, finger quotes, outstanding material all the time. I don't like the word. I would more than happily see it confined to the room 101 of education. Um, and we focus instead on effectiveness within context. We acknowledge that contexts offer different challenges and we acknowledge that moving from one context to another can vastly affect your ability to deliver material in a way that you would perceive to be yourself effective. So I think, Leanne, there, that, that whole word uh, has caused you a few issues. But perhaps if draw your attention or draw the attention back around, maybe, Leanne, um, this is where a, a deliberate practice approach to trainee development might have helped you because as we move into the fourth one, um, what we're looking to do with that deliberate practice is ensure that there are clear um, goals that have ensured that feedback for your trainee would occurring immediately after the practice of a specific skill. And that feedback, uh, deliberate practice requiring here high quality feedback to the novice and adjustment by the novice in response, but centred around one key area and that feature of the teacher's work is relative to the task or goal that's been set um, and there should be after that the opportunity for the trainee the novice teacher to exemplify what that might look like so leanne i feel your pain there and i think that would have been a very very difficult conversation to manage i hope that you did manage it effectively um, but i appreciate why that additional training and support would have been a valuable thing the final element of the deliberate practice model is the development of the mental models and representations. And I'm sure we're those of us with a growing understanding of the, uh, the cognitive principles that lie behind much of what we do in education understand that the more we move towards automaticity in certain elements, the greater space and capacity we clear. So we actually allow ourselves more opportunity to develop new ideas using the mental capacity that we have freed up. Um, and so I think the, the implication that deans give is that a novice teacher and, and the teacher educator, so the mentor in this case, should have a clear idea of how they know if learning is taking place. Okay. Now, um, as, as I say, recommend that entirely. It's a really, really strong paper. Um, another good one to look at would be the Teaching Teachers uh, paper from Matt Hood and Harry Fletcher Wood. Um, focused in America, but again, looking at the way in which teacher educators work with each other to achieve desired aims. Now, um, I posed a question to Debs earlier about whether or not mentoring is a whole school role and should be seen as such, or whether it's indeed the responsibility of the whole school to mentor anyone. And Deb used the phrase that it takes a village to raise a child. And I think she is absolutely right. One of the things that I hope that we can begin to think more closely about when it comes to effective mentorship is the fact that there is an element of art to it. Of course there is. But there is also a strong element of craft um, and there is that element of science as well. And I know I'm not the first to allude to the science, art and craft of teaching. But we know that if we're expecting our good mentors to be great teachers, we have to put enough support in place for them as well to avoid the fact that we have trainees coming in and being supported and developed by those who perhaps are there in a more grudging capacity and less perhaps in a capacity that will enable the trainee to be successful. So I'm coming towards the end of the show. Uh, I very much enjoyed 
not only speaking to you this evening, but also sharing that fantastic conversation with Debs Butler earlier on. And you have an opportunity to listen back via the app. Uh, thank you for those of you who have contributed to the chat this evening. Um, and hopefully there's something that you can take away from that. We asked our questions earlier on about what makes a great mentor, um, what providers can ask of their mentors, what providers can expect, and what might be some essential reading for mentors. Uh, if you are considering reading further down, I would strongly recommend that you ensure that you understand the difference between coaching and mentoring, first and foremost. Um, and then the work of Francis Langdon, uh, uh, around principled induction and principled mentoring of new teachers is a really, really valuable role. And then again, further digging down into the role of deliberate practice, perhaps through the Deans for Impact work. If you're more of a fan of a synthesis in book form that pulls together a range of aspects around teacher development, then I would recommend Unleashing Great Teaching by Weston and Clay, which does contain um, aspects relating to the mentorship and coaching of early career and new teachers, because of course that's my focus on this particular show. But we've reached the point where I'm afraid we're probably going to have to close. Uh, I'm going to end with two quotes tonight. Um, my first one uh, refers back to what we discussed with Deb earlier on about this need for a sort of shared language. And then I tried to pick up a little bit around what we where we perceive the lowest common denominator of language to be. And so I'm going to go to my uh, my oft quote Paolo Freire. And Freire tells us that dialogue as the encounter of those addressed to the human task, uh, common task of learning and acting is broken if the parties or one of them lack humility. How can I dialogue if I always project ignorance onto others and never perceive my own? How can I dialogue if I regard myself as a case apart from others? mere it's in whom I cannot recognise other eyes. And I think that's a really powerful message for anyone involved in mentorship to avoid what Hobson and Maldorez called judge mentoring. And then I'm going to close um, with, uh, I'm returning to uh, from whence we started. We started with Genesis. I'm going to close with Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 4.29. Um, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And I think by having a basic understanding of that particular idea and the concept that if, as mentor, we are going to allow unwholesome talk to come out of our mouths, we are not therefore going to be helpful in building others up. And we are going to end up with a little example of what I cited at the start of the show around that Tower of Babel, confused language where nobody understands each other. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Uh, I look forward very much to speaking with you again this time next week. Do please keep your eyes out for a very special guest joining me on the show um, as we continue our quest through the wonderful world of initial teacher education. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.